don't know me, my name's Jono, and we're going to be continuing our series on Genesis. So hopefully you were here last week, and you got a chance to hear Sam preach about Genesis 31, uh, which was kind of this idea of, of Jacob and his household fleeing from Laban, and a series of, of crazy coincidences happening, and I guess the general point Sam was pushing was, God is sovereign, God is in control. And we'll be continuing that idea here in Genesis 32 and 33, but before we do, I have a few announcements. Uh, so the first announcement I have here is we have midweek on Wednesday, uh, continuing our series on Revelation, and uh, I've heard Sam Stewart is doing it. Is that right? <laughs> hey, Zechariah falls in a, a tough passage, it's apocalyptic, and now that he's dipped his toes in the water, I feel like he's ready for midweek. That's right. We'll talk about it later, Sam. Maybe, maybe not. Okay, we'll figure it out. Uh, also, we have a, for teen parents, this is especially important because uh, Pam and I lead teens together, uh, we have a camp coming up next year in January. Uh, it's, I believe the title is The Fresh Prince of Nazareth. So, normally the title indicates what type of lessons we're looking at. I'm not sure what type of lessons we're covering uh, with that particular camp. But I would like you, if you are interested, if your teens are interested in coming, we're going to have a quick meeting after church today. I want to be discussing some fundraising ideas. And for the rest of the church, keep an ear open. We're going to have some fundraising coming up, and the teens are going to be trying to raise enough money to get over, because it's not cheap to fly over to the eastern states. Uh, finally, uh, last one I have here is SAS. Who knows what SAS is? S-A-S. Oh. The curry night, exactly. Sweet and spicy night. It's also fundraising from, I believe it was from Missions. Uh, that's on the 22nd of, of October. Uh, if you're a fan of sweet or spicy or fellowship, come along, okay, for sure. Uh, let's crack into it. So we're going to be looking at Genesis 32 and 33. And the title I want to give this sermon is The Demand of the Land. Because we're at this point now where Jacob is returning back to where God has sent him. But before he gets there, something needs to happen with his character. Something needs to change. And it's a repetitive idea we see with the patriarchs that there's almost a component of who they are which is not yet surrendered, surrendered to God. And even as, as I was prepping uh, uh, for Jacob, I couldn't help but think of it. He reminds me a lot of Abraham. This idea that he's holding something back, not fully surrendering, but here in these two passages, God is going to stamp that out. God is going to work through his character and get him ready for the land. And the reason I decided to do, to do two passages is because this narrative is kind of like a burger. You have the meat, the juicy meat in the middle, which is, of course, the wrestling with God. Most people know that story. Most people are like, oh yeah, cool, Jacob wrestling with God, that's interesting, I want to learn about that. But that meat is kind of sandwiched, literally sandwiched, between two very peculiar sections, which seem very disconnected from that means, but are still very important if we're going to understand the whole burger. Okay? So stay with me. Hopefully you're not too hungry. Don't walk off your grip, grab a on. So let's start there in chapter 32, verse 1. It says, Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God, so he named the place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my lord that I, might, I may find favor in your eyes. 
When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God, o my, o, o God of, my, of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I, may, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like descendants, like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from that he had, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau: two hundred female goats, twenty male goats, two hundred ewers, twenty rams, thirty female camels and their young, forty cows and ten bulls, and twenty female donkeys and ten male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me, keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, Who do you belong to, and where are you going, and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, They belong to your servant Jacob, they are a gift to my lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second and third, uh, and all the others who followed the herds, You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts. I'm sending on ahead later. When I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent all, sent all his possessions. So Jacob was alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome Jacob said, Please tell me your name. He replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob, Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him, the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip, hip was touched near the tendon. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau, coming with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and the children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? He asked. Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. 
Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed, bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and, down and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, What's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me, but see your face as I have seen the face of God. Now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Then Esau said, Let us be on our way, I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are tender, and that I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing their young. If they had driven hard just one day, all the animals would die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant, while I move along slowly at the pace of the flock and herds before me in the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord Isaiah. Esau said, Then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that? Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in your eyes, my lord. So that day, Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Sakoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Sakoth. After Jacob came from Padamaram, he arrived safely in the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped, there, camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamar, the, fa the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Awesome. Let's have a quick prayer and then we can unpack exactly what's happening. It's a random passage. It seems like at one point he's just, just going through the motions, getting ready for Esau, and now he's wrestling people. Right. Heavenly Father, um, yeah, thanks so much. We have the example of Jacob that we can relate to. Someone who struggles with understanding you, following you, and surrendering his life to you, Lord. And I, I just thank you so much that we have a realistic example that really examines or uh, points at our weaknesses. And that even though we are weak, Lord, we are loved by you, and that you would sacrifice your son for us, and in order so that we could be far more than we currently are. Uh, I love you, Lord, and I pray this in your precious name. Amen. Sweet. Let's crack into it. I have three points from this passage. Three quick points. Relatively quick. At first point's a little bit strong, a little bit long, but my final two points are quick, okay? We'll get through it quickly. And those two points I have here are, we need to learn to revere, not fear. As you notice in this passage, Jacob is a fearful type of guy. He is afraid of confronting Esau, and that fear is really hindering him fully obeying God. And we need to learn to revere God and not fear. Secondly, we need to embrace the grace. I mean, grace is a huge component of this passage. And in order for him to overcome his fear, understanding what grace is, is essential for that. And finally, it takes self-denial to reconcile. Reconciliation is challenging. Relationships are challenging. But it takes a degree of self-denial if we are going to reconnect. And we have a great example here of Jacob and Esau reconnecting. Esau has every right to despise Jacob. And it makes sense that Jacob would be afraid of Esau. The last time they met, Esau was like, dude, I'm going to kill you, okay? I'm going to hunt you down. Murderous intentions. And so for Jacob to think, oh gosh, I, I really want to be careful around this guy, it makes sense. But even despite that tension, there is reconciliation in this passage. And what I really want to touch on before we uh, look at the first point is Jacob 
at this point has been commanded to go back to the promised land. And if you guys remember last, uh, uh, last, last week, in, in Genesis 31 verse 3, uh, Sam looked at this, but God commands uh, Jacob, he says, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. The first part, go back to your home. Not too bad, geographically relocating, okay? Just get everyone up, make a big convoy, off we go. But the second part, go back to your relatives, is exactly what we're going to be unpacking today. Because that's not so simple. It's not that straightforward for Jacob, okay? So let's look at our first point here, which is we need to learn to revere and not fear. And we get this interesting section at the very beginning of chapter 32, where it seems like Jacob's just kind of plodding along with his convoy, and then he, he meets some angels. Very interesting, very peculiar. And then he goes on to name that group of angels, that camp of angels, as a camp of God. And what's compelling about this is, what I find compelling at least, is in his moment of need, I mean, he's about to approach Esau, right? He's about to kind of, kind of have that ultimate confrontation. He just happens to come across God's camp. And as I was reading some commentaries and trying to unpack this, what I really noticed is that the idea of God's camp was the sense of, well, God is present. He's with me. In my hardest moment, God is right next to me, and He's going to support me. And it's natural for all of us to have that kind of inclination. Even if we were to go camping, there's certain people in this room who I would want around me if I was camping. We were, we were at an Airbnb last night, and Byron and I were trying to make fire, and we, we were struggling. We sucked, okay? I think we used almost every single fire starter, and then we still did not have a fire. But what really hurt us was that Stefan came in, and he got it going instantly. That's the, that's the type of guy you want around you, right? When you're out camping, or I don't know, if you're out in the wilderness, you want Jack, or you want I don't know, Jordan. But you don't want me, okay? You're, I'm the last guy you want. But what we see here is... Jacob has the exact person that he needs in that moment. God is presence. And it's, it's, it's a core component. Even when Jacob, as we'll see in a moment, rejects God and says, you know what, I'm not going to follow you, God. God is still present and is still working. But at the same time, it's a little bit concerning, right? It, it, it's, it, it's a little bit sad because even though you have this camp of God right next to him, it only gets two verses in the entire chapter. It's introduced at the beginning and then it's barely referred to afterwards. And what is the rest of the chapter kind of dedicated towards? Jacob stressing. <laughs> Jacob fearful. Oh gosh, I'm about to, to meet Esau. Let me get all my cattle, all my goats and my donkeys together so I can pacify this man. I think the reason why God's camp gets such little attention in the passage is because it gets so little attention in the mind of Jacob. It's secondary. Yes, God's with me, but these fears, man, these fears are right here as well. They're, they're approaching. I may die. My people may die. God, no, let me address my fears real quick. Let, let me take care of that while I have a chance. And I, 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 we, see, we see this fear in, in a very specific way when it comes to, when it comes to Jacob, okay? And we'll look at this next one. The fear comes across in two different ways for Jacob. The first, first of all, he fixates on the negative. As we were talking about before, it's all about his fear. It's all about Esau. There's no, there's no room for positive in the mind of, of Jacob. But secondly, and this is why I find most interesting, is that the 
fear he's experiencing reveals something about his nature. It reveals something about who he is. And ironically, even though that fear is destructive, it's kind of useful because it actually reveals what character element that he needs to have changed before he goes to the promised land. What does he need to have changed? And the reason why I, I, I bring this up, what he needs to have changed, is because this is a recurring pattern in Jacob's life. Think about how he responds to his fear. What does he do? Whoops. Beep. <laughs> he, he's shrewd. He, Jacob does Jacob, right? From the very beginning, Jacob has been doing Jacob. He's been conniving. He's been manipulative. He's been shrewd. Kind of working the system. He did it with his blind old father to steal Esau's blessing. That's when we were first introduced to Jacob, the idea of Jacob. I mean, he does it time and time again. This is, this is who he is. This is what he does. And that's exactly what we see again here in this passage. In verse 3 to 6 and verse 13 to 16, we see Jacob amass this, this huge gift. This is kind of convoy of animals that he's going to send Esau's way. Why? What's the intention? Well, it says it in verse 20. He does it so that he may pacify Esau. Let me take everything I've got. Maybe I can fix this problem. Maybe I can be the solution. I mean, the lunacy of that, the reason why he's in that situation in the first place is because of himself. And he, he, he kind of connects us the same mindset that we often have as well, that we can be the solution despite us being the problem. And that's just not the way it works out when it comes to Jacob. And he does it in another way, another way as well. Consider here in verse 7 of, uh, of chapter 32. Jacob has a very specific way in which he structures his camp. You guys notice this? He divides it into two groups. For what purpose? Well, if one group gets destroyed, maybe the second group can bail and make it out alive. How awkward would it be if you and his family, he put you in that first group? <laughs> Yikes! That, that's going to be awkward, okay? As he's dividing, like, yeah, I, I like you, but you're dispensable. Your life, I, I can live without, okay? But Rachel and, uh, and uh, Joseph, you guys, you guys are back here. You guys are in the safe room. You guys are my, my homies. I want to keep you safe. But it, it, it shows exactly how his mind works. As soon as fear begins to creep in, his nature comes out. Let me start manipulating the situation. Let me start trying to get my fingers in everything and try to work the system so that I can be safe. But there is some hope for Jacob, right? Because he is internally conflicted. And what I love about this passage is that way before we even encounter the physical wrestling of Jacob, the physical wrestling of Jacob, we get an insight into the emotional wrestling of Jacob, the internal wrestling. If you, if you guys are, are there in verse 32, it says in verse 10, sorry, uh, to 11, he says in his prayer to God, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant, and I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan. But now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers and their children. He has a seriously conflicted internal operation. 
And one error, when he faces his fears, it's all on him. It's a part of him who wants to pave his own way. And then the opposite side, he's like, God, I need help. Save me. Deliver me from the hand of my enemy. And God hears him. God hears him, and he actually comes and helps. But really, we can summarize it in this question. And I feel like this question is applicable to all of us. Is that who do we revere? Who is the real master of our lives? Is it ourselves? And if it is ourselves, we're going to be led by fear. Yeah. It's all going to be about preserving self, or I guess in some sense, a prospering self. But if we are led by God, if we're going to lean on God, then self becomes less of a factor. And it's only through, as we'll see in a moment, it's only through his reliance on God that he is actually reconciled with Esau at the end. So are we fear-driven? How, how do our fears hinder our ability to surrender to, to, surrender to God? I, some, some great examples that even I feel uh, suit me is speaking the truth. When I'm faced with a, a tough scenario where I, I feel like I need to speak the truth, I need to step up for what I believe in, do I shrink back from it? Because I'm afraid of what someone may, someone may think of me. I mean, is there a relationship or someone you know where, who they desperately need truth, but you are too afraid to bring it? Or maybe it's receiving the truth. Maybe you are afraid of giving advice because you know that advice is going to undermine your perception of who you are. Maybe, maybe when it comes to giving advice, you ignore it, you shift it to the side because you're trying to preserve self. And finally, the one out here is parenting. And I'm not a parent, okay? By babysitting, so that's kind of similar, okay? For last week's episode. I'm not a parent. Let me let me clarify that, okay? One day. But okay. But okay, But parenting, guys, I feel like often we can be fearful. Like, is my is my child gonna follow God? Do I have to cuddle them? Do I have to prevent them being exposed to anything out there? And then they finally get to that moment where they are confronted with the world and with them, what happens? They get squished, okay? They get crushed. Okay, we think, are, we, are we parenting in fear or are we parenting by faith? Yeah. Not to oh. say that our faith means that we are, are foolish in what we expose children to, of course not. But there's an element of that I'm not going to be drawn or led by fear in the way I raise my children. And so how, how does God help how does God help Esau here? Well, if you are familiar, I mean if you have a perception of God as a, as a loving God, you know, a gentle God, you may assume that God comes down and kind of like coddles Jacob. Like you're you're, you're afraid, it's okay, hang in there, buddy, okay? Here's some nice words. That's not what happens, okay? What happens is that God comes down and puts him in a headlock, which is a total opposite idea of what I would expect personally, okay? But it does show that God, the God's way of, I guess, helping someone is radically different to what we may expect. So why, why, is this, why, is this, why do we have this random wrestling match? What is the entire point of this, this, this section in the, in the text? And I think the reason why we have this section is because we've seen a, a physical manifestation of, of Jacob wrestling with God. That's the first part. So it's taking the eternal and presenting it as external. But secondly, I feel like we, we get an image of grace, of what it means to actually fight with God. 
and overcome in some sense. It's a confusing passage, it's challenging, because when we read it we think, oh gosh, does, does Jacob prevail against God? Well, the, the answer I have here is, well, not, not, not exactly, okay? There's two main points for why God wrestles with Jacob, and to, to, to frame those two points, we got to understand that God desires, or doesn't desire, just, just to crush someone into submission. I mean, if God wants to wrestle and crush Jacob, he could. He touches his hip and his hip explodes or something. I don't know, it falls out of the socket. Right? It doesn't take much for God to win that fight. But it goes on and on and on to daybreak. You're like, why is this taking so long? Well, what's happening here? I think the reason why is because God has given Jacob the maximum opportunity to surrender. He's not going to just crush Jacob. He's going to give him opportunity to lay down his arms, to surrender his life to him. But when that doesn't work, when that doesn't happen, when daybreak starts to come, he does two things which I find very interesting. The first one is that in verse 25 of, of chapter 32, it says, When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. It was wrenched. It was kind of like, he's physically maimed. Like, oh gosh, God, that's a bit harsh. Why would you do that? Well, I think it's also a very painful lesson. But I also think it's a very necessary lesson for Jacob to learn. Jacob's heart is that he depends on self. His hip goes, suddenly he can barely walk. What does that do to someone's psyche? Gosh, I can't even, one section of me falls out or it doesn't work properly. How on earth are you going to rely on yourself? And it's a, it's a painful lesson, but I think it's a lesson that God tries to teach all of us. When we have, a, 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 I guess, a challenge or um, when we stubbornly hold on to the reins of our own life. We have these circumstances where God will put us through painful trials. He'll make us suffer. He'll touch an area which hurts, which is painful. And too often when that happens, our first instinct is to go to God and say, God, take it away. Take away this suffering. Take away this pain. Make it easier for me. But maybe we're missing the point. <laughs> maybe amongst those trials is a lesson God is trying to teach us. Something God is trying to reveal about ourselves. And so often we may have financial challenges or university woes or anything of that nature or work woes. Maybe the reason why we have those challenges is because God's trying to teach us about what we idolize. He's trying to help us understand that our, the way we orientate our value system is not correct. Or maybe we have relationship issues. We think, oh gosh, life would be easier if God would just come in and solve these issues. But maybe we're missing the point. Maybe the reason there's issues is because God is trying to help you learn a lesson about your pride. Or maybe he's trying to help you learn how to love someone who's challenging to love. Do we pick up on these lessons? Because Jacob doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't pick up on the first lesson, right? He gets kind of zapped in his hip and he's still going, he's still holding on. And so, so Jacob, oh sorry, sorry, not Jacob. So God goes to plan B. It's a, a little bit more sophisticated than what, uh, how God approaches te teaching um, um, Jacob uh, dependency on him. And that's found uh, in the fact that in verse 26, I believe it's verse 26, yeah. he says, oh sorry, in verse 27, the man asked, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. 
That's subtle, okay? Stay with me. That's very subtle. Asking his name, it doesn't seem like there's a lot there. It's not, definitely not as flamboyant or extra as, you know, destroying his hit. But there's something subtle in it, in the sense that when he asks his name, biblically, in, the, in ancient Israel, your name represented who you were. It represented how you operated. And you either lived up to your name, or you became a very satirical, kind of ironic version of your name. And for Jacob, what does his name mean? Deceiver, heel grabber, not, not positive. And so when God says, what is your name? What? The omniscient all-knowing God doesn't need that information. When he's asking you a question about who you are, it's not for his sake. It's, it's for Jacob's sake. He's trying to help Jacob realize something. And that something is that Jacob needs to confront who he is. There's darkness that he's literally run away for for 20 years. He's left it in the past. But here he is saying, I am Jacob. I am the deceiver. I am the heel grabber. And it's confronting the dude. And I, I, I think, whoops, I think that's a necessary component of understanding God's grace. We so often, we get caught up in, I guess, life in general, and sometimes things which we don't want to come to the surface are just kept there, beneath the surface. But God is saying that, well, to Jacob at the very least, that if you want to enter the land, if you want to have reconciliation with Esau, then you have to be willing to bring up those things from the surface. And that is Jacob's real fear. I think it's a mistake to read this passage and just think, Jacob is afraid of Esau because Esau is going to kill him. Jacob is afraid of Esau because of what Esau represents about Jacob. Esau is a testament to the least desirable parts of who Jacob is. And we, I find this especially uh, uh, um, uh, obvious in some sense uh, because we see that the type of offering that Jacob gives is is livestock, cattle. And where, do, where does all that livestock come from originally? It, come, it comes from God, the blessing of God. What did Jacob do to Esau? He took the blessing. It's kind of saying when Jacob gives him this gift, he's like, well, I'm trying to give you the blessing back. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, 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 I wish I had not done this. And so, so God is helping Jacob recognize that he has a dark history and he needs to confront it. And this helps him understand grace way better. Because when we read verse 30, it says, or Jacob says, I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. It's starting to click here that he has encountered God and he should be destroyed. He's unworthy to be in the presence of God, but he has been spared. And the lesson for us is if we bring those darkness, the dark areas of our life into, into the light, we don't have to fear condemnation because that's not what Jacob received. He is someone who reveals who he is and he is not destroyed. In fact, he's given grace. He's changed. God says, Jacob, the deceiver, is gone. You are now Israel. You're given a new identity. But that only happens, that only happens if he is willing to come and, and, and bear those, those less desirable components of his life. 
I have this quote here, and it's by a guy named John Gunstone. And it says, the best answer to fear is to have a firm grasp of what it means to be accepted by God. So have a firm grasp of what it means to be accepted. If we understand what grace is, if we understand that fully, it removes the need for us to be afraid. Because it removes the need for us to rely on ourselves. And finally, the last point I have here is the final confrontation that Jacob and Esau have. And it's there in verse 19 to 20. Oh, sorry. Uh, what I want to look at here is we, we, when we don't have a proper understanding of God's grace, when we don't fully understand it, we start, we start to become self-focused. And that's exactly where Jacob begins before he has an encounter with God. If you see that in verse 19 to 20 of chapter 32, it says, He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds, You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him, and be sure to say, Your servant Jacob is coming behind us. He's very self-focused. It's about preserving self. He's not leading from the front at this point. He's behind where it's going to be safe. Everyone else will be destroyed, but Jacob, I can hang back here and be safe. But we see a radical change after he encounters God, after his life is spared, after he is shown grace and he becomes Israel. In verse 3 of chapter 33, we see the opposite. He himself, referring to Jacob, went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. There's one point where he, Jacob stayed behind, but now Jacob is going ahead. Jacob has been humbled. It's not about him anymore. And that's what grace has potential to do. And that's exactly why he experiences reconciliation with Esau. Jacob has been humbled. He falls at the feet of Esau. He recognizes his wrong and he denies himself. And it seems like Esau has a very similar experience as well. And we're not given any information about Esau's encounter with God or how he has got to the point where he can show grace to, uh, to Jacob. But we do know both of them are on the same page of like, it's not about, it's not about me. I want to honor, I want to elevate the other. And really, I, just to finish off uh, this lesson, I asked, what do you guys think of it? What are some of the relationships that you have that need grace in them? That lack humility. And when you think of that relationship, think about how a clear understanding of God and what He has done for you, of Jesus on the cross, the ultimate demonstration of grace, think about how that reality should change that relationship. I mean, it removes all pride. I mean, if you feel like you've been wronged unfairly, consider how Jesus was wronged unfairly. Yet despite him having an enemy in us, that relationship is reconciled because of his love for us. And as we, as we really begin to understand grace and let it seep into our relationships, our relationships, behold, become restored. They become reconciled. And I, I, just, I was listening to Tim Keller a while ago. He describes it as violent grace. Two words you don't often connect, but violent grace. And what violent grace means is that when grace comes in contact with a person, they do not have an option but to change. Grace can be effective. Grace can be targeted. But when we, when we express grace in our lives, it produces more grace. It produces more humility. 
And I'll just close out here with uh, verse 4. And the reason I like verse 4 is because it reminds me a lot of Luke 15. So verse 4, chapter 33. And it says, But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. The reason I want to finish on that is because think about these two brothers. At one point in their life, Esau desired to kill Jacob. And Jacob wanted nothing to do with Esau. Yet here they are, embracing and weeping together. That's the power of God's grace. That's what God's God's grace can do to our relationships. So I pray, as as we close up and finish up, try your best, guys, to view your your relationships in general, to, to, to view how you encounter people through the lens of the sacrifice of Christ. The ultimate example of grace. So let's have a quick prayer, and then we'll finish up with a song and fellowship. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, um, yeah, thank you for the uh, the fact that even though we are or were your enemies, Lord, that we were in opposition to you, Lord, that we were powerless to, to save ourselves, that you made a way when there was no way. And I thank you for the fact that we have this example of Jacob, Jacob and Esau, two, two guys who had really... It's a terrible relationship, Lord. But when you get involved, when you step into the equation, step into the picture, anything can happen, Lord. Relationships can be restored and be reconciled. And I love you for that fact, Lord, that you can change our lives through your grace and not through our own works. I love you, Lord, and I pray this in your precious name.